Thank you, choir, for sharing such a beautiful song. I haven't ever heard that one before, but that one's a profound song in its meaning and and the beauty of the words. I I appreciate you sharing that with us. So um, let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the worship service that we've already enjoyed, for the songs that we've sung, the prayers that we've offered scripture that we've read and the in the beautiful choir special that we've heard lord i pray that as we enter this time of study that you would work through the words of your uh, scripture and that you would work through the words that i preach to draw us closer to you to give us the power of the spirit that we might resist the temptations of satan that we might resist his his attacks and that we might stand boldly against the works of the devil I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, we're going to look at a very famous passage. And we're going to look at this over the course of the next uh, next three weeks as we kind of work through this passage and look at different aspects of it. But really what I'm doing is we're coming to the beginning of the end of sorts. Uh, for our study in the doctrine of worship. We've been in this since January the 17th as I've preached through all the different aspects of how worship impacts every part of our lives. We've seen the meaning of worship, the purpose of worship, and the acts of worship. But uh, there's one last question that I need to answer or I feel like I need to answer as we come to the end of this study. And that is, what is the end goal of worship, Or if you want to put it another way, where is worship taking us? Where are we going with it when we worship together, when we live a faithful Christian life, when we um, come together as a congregation, when we read scripture, when we pray together, when we pray uh, by ourselves? Where are we going with all of this as we worship together in this world? And how is worship going to end? What is the end goal of our worship? So over the next five weeks, I want to answer that question. And I want to answer it as, uh, as kind of a study in what theologians call eschatology or the study of the last things, the, the judgment, the end of the world, the, the powers and principalities of this world. But I want to do that by looking at those things through the lens of worship. So we're going to consider the battle that we are all in that's going on right now, whether we know it or not. Even now, as we worship together in this place and at this time, a battle is going on in the spiritual realm. And we're going to today look at that battle. Second, we're going to look at the ways that we are involved in that battle, how we as Christians fight in that spiritual battle that is going on. And we're going to look at the weapons that we use to fight that battle. And then we're also going to look at the final judgment that is to come on the wicked and the final reward that is to come on the righteous. So as we go through the next five weeks, we're going to look at each of those things and understand what God is doing through our worship as we faithfully worship Him in this world. So this morning we begin by looking at the world, and I'm going to ask that you do this over the next five weeks as we look at each of those things, but to look at the world not as we see it with our physical eyes, but with our spirit. 
So to do that, let's begin by looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 together. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, God's word says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So today I want to focus just on verse 12 and Over the next three weeks, we're going to come back to this passage and look at all the different aspects of this battle that Paul is talking about. But today, I want to focus on who it is that we fight in the battle that we fight as Christians. And so today, I want to look at two points from just verse 12 as we consider that point or, or this subject. And that is, I want to look at the war and I want to look at the warriors. So the war and the warriors. So first, let's consider the war that is raging right now in the heavenly places. Notice that Paul says in verse 12 that there is a battle that Christians fight. Whether we know it or not, whether we want to or not, we are enlisted when we become Christians. We are enlisted in a fight for the very cosmos itself. And it is not a battle, as Paul says, of flesh and blood, but one that is set against spiritual forces. Now, in this statement, Paul describes what our fight is not, and he describes what our fight is. So notice first, Paul describes what our fight is not by saying that our battle is not a battle against flesh and blood. Now, that means two things. First of all, uh, in other words, the war that Christians fight or called to fight is not against other humans. Now, this is a very difficult concept for us to grasp. It's a very difficult concept for me to grasp as I studied and prepared for this sermon today. But it's something that we have to get, especially in our day and time. It's something that I want you, if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. And I'll put it in stark terms. The terrorist who flew airplanes into the World Trade Center on 9-11 are not, hear me now, are not our real enemy. The Taliban, as cruel as they are, are not the real enemy. The liberals in our own country who laugh and celebrate the murder of unborn children are not the real enemy. The LGBTQ movement that revels in the redefinition of marriage and the re-education of our youth is, are not the real enemy. The man that you sit next to at Shoney's who's all tatted up and looks like a menacing character is not the real enemy. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, Paul tells us that those who are outside of Christ are under the influence of Satan. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he says that we were once in darkness before we came to Christ. Now understand that since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind has been trapped in slavery to sin and to the devil. Understand, brothers and sisters, your unbelieving neighbor is not your enemy. He is a lost soul for whom Christ died. That atheist that is so hostile to you at work is made in the image of God and is a life that God values and created for His glory. That liberal with whom you argue with on Facebook about abortion is made in the image of God and is valuable to Him. The second thing about this battle Uh, about what the battle is not, when he says that it is not of flesh and blood, it also means, and I'll talk about this more in the third sermon that we're going to look at this text in, but this battle is not fought with worldly tools. This battle is not fought with money or fame or power or politics or recognition or any other thing that you might think a battle should be fought with. And so the battle is not of flesh and blood. So who is this? Who is it that we are supposed to battle? If we don't battle with flesh and blood, who are the warriors that we're supposed to fight? Paul answers this by going on to say that we wrestle with rulers, with authorities, with cosmic powers, and with spiritual forces. Now, if you read some commentaries on this, you'll find that some theologians like to get very technical about all these different, these four different categories that Paul gives here. And and they'll claim that these different titles designate different levels of authority or different levels of spiritual beings that we battle against. But I think instead that Paul is giving different attributes of the same spiritual beings against whom we fight. So to understand what's going on here and what Paul is talking about when he talks about these powers and principalities and authorities that we battle against, we need to open our eyes to see something that is hidden in plain sight throughout all of the Bible. First of all, Because of the influence of Greek philosophy in our culture, we tend to draw a sharp distinction between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. I don't know if you have this view, but I know I I grew up with this view that we tend to think that God is off in heaven somewhere and the demons are down in hell somewhere and we exist on this totally separate plane here on earth. But the Bible does not depict the world in that way. Instead, the heavenly realm and the earthly realms exist over the top of each other. So when, the, when God creates the world, if you think about back in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created what? The heavens and the earth. Both are part of the same world. They exist together. Now, when he establishes the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, the garden is a dwelling place for man, but it is also a temple where God reigns and where he walks with his creation in the cool of the day. 
In Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob falls asleep on a rock, which I don't know why he picked a rock to fall asleep on, but he falls asleep on a rock, he has a vision of a stairway to heaven. And this vision is a picture of God's temple resting over the earth. Not separate, but over the earth. So the spiritual realm is not some distant place. It is right here. Right now, right beside us, right with us. Second, God is the only true God of the universe. But that doesn't mean that He is alone in the spiritual realm. And it also doesn't mean that He rules the universe by Himself. When God created the world, He established spiritual rulers, spiritual beings who would rule over parts of this earth and govern parts of this earth. So if you read Job chapter 1 verse 6, you'll find this heavenly scene in which all of these spiritual beings, including, by the way, Satan himself, who come before the throne of God and they are reporting to God like a regional ruler would report to a king. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, we find that there's this evil spiritual being who rules over the land of Persia. In fact, he's even called the prince of Persia. And in that, you find that God has even delegated the authority to rule over nations to demons who keep those nations in darkness. The third thing that I want you to understand about these spiritual beings, these warriors, is in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that there was a great battle that happened in heaven at some point. We don't know exactly when in, in, in times past. And in that battle, Satan led a third of the heavenly host against God. Satan was defeated and, and Revelation 12 says that he was thrown down or he was cast out of heaven, along with all of his minions. And since that time, they have been bringing havoc on this world. We find that from the very beginning of Genesis. If you think back to Genesis 3, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and remember, Adam and Eve were the king and queen of earth. And so when they bowed the knee to Satan, their sin brought, gained him control over the entire human race. We find it in the people before the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that the sons of God, these, these fallen angels, influenced men and women of that time so that they were filled with great violence. We find it when Satan destroyed the, the family of Job and the wealth of Job so that he would curse God. We find it in the demonic worship of pagan nations and in the persecution of Israel and his church. We also find it, and we still find it today. And there are three ways that I want to show you where we find the work of evil spiritual beings in, uh, that influence our world today. First of all, these evil spiritual beings accept worship in the place of God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, it says, What the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So understand that the first priority of Satan, the thing that Satan loves more than anything else, the whole reason 
for his rebellion is to steal the glory of God. You are not the end goal of Satan's existence. Now, it feels like it when he comes down heavy on you, but you are an instrument to his end goal. His end goal is to take away the worship of the Almighty God of this universe. And he does that by taking away the people who were created for that worship. So Satan revels in the worship of the false worship of the people of this world, and he enjoys enticing men to worship false religions over and against the true religion of God's people and the Christian religion. Second, evil, spirit, uh, evil spirits blind men from the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now understand this because we tend to look at our lost friends and think there is something wrong with them. And to think, oh, they just don't get it because they're too stupid. Or they don't get it because they are flawed in some way that you were not. Understand, friend, uh, or brothers and sisters, if it were not for the work of God in your life, you would be lost and blind just like the rest of this world. It is God who by His work, by His Word, opened your heart and your mind to see the truth of the gospel. And that is what is needed in your neighbor's life just like it was in yours. It is do not resent your lost neighbor because he just doesn't get the gospel. Pray for your lost neighbor because he is blind. That is why he cannot see. And thirdly, Satan seeks to make the church ineffective through false teaching and division. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 says that false teachers follow the pattern of Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, over the centuries, the church has been tempted to deny the divinity of Christ. It's been tempted to reject the salvation in Jesus by saying that it can be, you can be saved by works. We have been tempted to focus on worldly concerns like politics and culture rather than the gospel and the age to come. Satan has reveled in the fracturing of the church through denominational disagreement and through the splitting of individual churches over the smallest of differences. He has raised up liars and charlatans within the church who will talk a good game. They look the part, they act the part, but they lead many astray. And he has established false religions that give people a sense of hope all while they are made twofold members of hell. I've seen at least the first, I've seen all three aspects of this in my own ministry and life. Uh, When I was uh, a few years back, back in 2010, I had the opportunity to go to Haiti. I've told you some of those stories and had the opportunity to go twice down to Haiti once to build uh, back for uh, build shelters for those who were affected by the earthquake in 2010. And then in 2011, we went back to build some churches. And while we were building churches on the second trip, we had, uh, we were, uh, my dad and I, we were up on top of the, 
the roof of the church, putting rafters up, and and um, and this uh, this woman comes walking up, and she starts talking to one of the other people in our person people in our team and saying something to them about our building project. And we get to looking around for the the local pastors who were there helping us build the church. And we noticed that they were nowhere to be found. And the reason was this woman that had walked up was a voodoo priestess. And those pastors, though they were strong in their faith, though they uh, knew the love of God and they had seen the power of God, they scattered like cockroaches when that woman came around. And what she was coming to tell us was that we needed to stop building a church because she had a voodoo temple just down the road and she didn't want us taking away from her congregation. We heard terrible stories of people who would uh, go to this woman to gain uh, success in their life or to be, get free from an ailment and she would give them some drug and pray over them and they would become, I think, possessed. And some of them would even run off cliffs as a result of whatever this woman did to them in her voodoo rituals. Like we see in the, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, say, Satan desires to distract people from the worship of God and even destroy their lives so that they cannot worship. Amen. I've also seen it in... Um, the way that God, uh, the way that Satan works in our uh, in blinding people to the gospel. I, I had uh, there for a little while, for a couple of years, uh, the pastor at First Presbyterian, Rob Fawcett, and I went to the jail each week, the local Butler County Jail, and we taught a gospel lesson each week to the uh, male inmates there at the jail. And we started having a good congregation come each week and had a pretty good turnout. And it wasn't long as we began to preach the gospel each week before we started to see just strange things happening in that, that group that would come. One time, we were, we were being very specific and sharing the gospel, getting ready to, to call them to, to trust in Jesus Christ. And this one man begins to be sick on his stomach, and he jumps out, up and he runs out of the, the um, room. And... Rob and I both talked about it afterwards, and I said, Rob, that, you know, you see that kind of thing in, in foreign countries where Satan is very present and real, and it was very apparent that that was a demonic work to keep that young man from hearing that gospel message and responding. You see it in the way that he blinds people even today in distracting them and even physically keeping them from the gospel. And I've seen the church be distracted from its mission by being caught up in debates over the smallest of things, being divided over how to spend money or how to what to do in the next building project. And we allow our divisions to distract us from the mission of God and Satan revels in that distraction. So friend, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a slave to sin and the devil. You may think that you're free, but you are not free to do what you want in this life. In fact, you are pretty predictable in what you will choose. 
You will choose selfish desires and the sins that you prefer, and those things will ultimately kill you and condemn you to hell. Your heart and mind are darkened to the spiritual powers that are at work in this world and by the spiritual powers that are at work in this world. And the only way that you can be set free from them is to turn to faith in Christ. Jesus has defeated sin and death and the devil through His death and resurrection. He has, his death paid the full penalty for your sin so that if you turn to faith in Him, Satan has no more claim over your life. And Jesus proved Himself to be the ruler over all of creation through His resurrection from the dead. Though Satan has rule over those who are dead, he could not rule over Christ, and Christ defeated Him on the cross and in the tomb in His resurrection. So those who trust in Him have eternal life. They have hope of resurrection. Won't you trust in Christ today and escape your slavery to Satan and to His rule? Brothers and sisters, our battle is not with flesh and blood. That means that we cannot use the weapons of this world to fight that spiritual war. We cannot use money or fame or power or politics to defeat Satan. Instead, we must turn to the weapons that God has given us. And we cannot see our fellow humans as enemies in this war against Satan. Instead, we must see them as captives in need of rescue. We must not hate them, but instead hate the power that blinds them. We must not shun them, but pray against the spirits that keep them in darkness. My hope is that we will see this life as more than just a physical world of trees and landscapes and towns and cities and jobs and work, but we will see it, we will open our eyes to see the spiritual battle that rages around us and that we will seek the power of God to fight it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that we are powerless apart from your spirit and your work in our lives. Father, we pray for the power to resist Satan. We pray for the power to bind him. We pray for the power to witness faithfully and to live a faithful Christian life in the light of this community. That we would be faithful to do good and to spurn evil. That we would be faithful to pray for those who are in spiritual darkness that we would be faithful to give for the furthering of your kingdom and that we would give our own bodies if necessary for the worship of the one true God. Father, I pray that we as a church would be found faithful in our daily lives and in our corporate lives as a church. Father, that we would be a light in this community as we seek to bring the light of the gospel to this dark world. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.